If you're hearing this, it means that you're subscribed to the public podcast feed and only hearing the first half of the conversation. If you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast, consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. This episode has been a long time coming. I've wanted to speak about this topic for quite a while and have been looking high and low for the right person to have the conversation with. When I found out that my guest today, Dylan Hoffman, has included the work of indigenous author and activist Vine Deloria in his depth psychology courses at Pacifica Graduate Institute, I suspected that I might have finally found the right person to have this conversation with, and I wasn't disappointed. In the discussion that follows, you'll hear Dylan and I address the topic of decolonizing psychology, what that means, why it's important to recognize it and to call it out, and why including indigenous voices like Deloria into psychological training is essential to that project. We discussed the ways Deloria appreciated and critiqued the work of Carl Jung, how colonization can't be separated from Christianity, what our favorite renegade psychologist James Hillman contributes to the decolonizing project, and how a marriage of archetypal psychology and shamanic practice might just offer an authentic and effective animist spiritual practice for a post-colonial, post-Christian West. This was a fantastic conversation, and I'm sure I'll be speaking with Dylan again somewhere down the road. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on this topic. You can join the conversation by becoming a member of the private Howl in the Wilderness Patreon community, starting at just a couple bucks a month. Sign up at patreon.com forward slash Howl in the Wilderness. You could also contribute and support the podcast by subscribing to the Howl YouTube channel. Subscribing doesn't cost anything, and it allows me to monetize the videos I release for each and every episode. If you like, you can even show your appreciation there by purchasing a super thanks, which is an option I didn't even know about until a generous listener started sending cash tips for the episodes that he appreciates. So sending a great big long howl of gratitude out to our Patreon and YouTube subscribers. I couldn't have kept this podcast going and growing for the past five years without you. A little technical note before we get started. My microphone wasn't working properly for this recording, so I don't sound great, but Dylan does, and that's the main thing. Now, onto my conversation with Dylan Hoffman on Jung, Deloria, Hillman, and the decolonization of psychology. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm here with Dylan Hoffman. Uh, do I call you a doctor? I know you've got a PhD. Dylan is is great. <laughs> I didn't spend four years in archetypal psychology school not to be called doctor. 
<laughs> okay, good. Yeah, no, Dylan's good. I, I hopefully go going through a depth psychological program got me to the place where I don't need to be called <laughs> dumb. <laughs> You've transcended that egoic need. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but I put the PhD on everything, so. Yeah, well, you got to have your credentials, right? Otherwise, no one takes an archetypal psychologist very seriously. So, yeah. Uh, well, for people who don't know you, would you mind just introducing yourself a um, little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, I am currently uh, both co-chair and core faculty member of the Jungian and Archetypal Studies uh, Master's and PhD program at Pacifica Graduate Institute. Um, and so um, my time is devoted to to that program on as a whole. I dip my toes into other programs at Pacifica, like depth psychology and creativity. Um, and, but for the most part, my work is devoted to sort of the general parameters of C.G. Jung's and James Hillman's work. And we work through that in our curriculum in a fairly systematic way. Uh, and that's that's what the Jungian Archetypal Studies program is, is devoted to. Hmm. Uh, well, there's like a number of things that we could talk to you. I mean, um, I'm a big fan of James Hillman and he doesn't get uh, spoken about enough with uh, some depth and understanding of his work. You know? right. um, but one of the things that uh, I was intrigued by was that uh, you also are a fan of Vine Deloria, yes. and you, you actually assigned one of his books in your curriculum, right? Correct. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I was a long time getting to Vine Deloria because I think I had this idea that he was, and I think it has to do with the design of uh, one of his book covers that I encountered. I had kind of lumped him in with the kind of Baron Company kind of right. indigenous revival thing that happened in the 90s. And I looked at his name, I thought, who's this Italian guy talking about indigenous spirituality? Right. Um, and I didn't investigate any more into it until, uh, I don't know, something came along like fairly recently. And I said, oh, this guy sounds really interesting. And I yeah. actually picked up uh, God is Red and was totally blown away. I loved what he was talking about and the way that he talked about it. Um, I see like his work as part of this larger project I've been involved in of uh, decolonizing, uh, first of all, my own psyche, right. but then um, trying to decolonize psychology at large. And uh, the book that you assign is called C.G. Jung and the Sioux Traditions. And it's an indigenous person commenting on Jung's ideas about the so-called primitive and indigenous people. Um, Jung's few encounters with real indigenous people have been really made into a big deal for Jungians who want to see him as this uh, very well-rounded and worldly person. Um, but Vine is, can be critical of uh, a lot of the assumptions and generalizations that Jung makes, right? Correct. So that's what I'd like to dive into with, with you because not many, I mean, no one's talking about it. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I'm glad you're out there. So first of all, like maybe to begin, 
what do you think about this idea uh, of decolonizing psychology? Is that something that, um, I mean, does that mean anything to you? And if so, uh, what do you think that entails or why is it required? Yeah, no, it's uh, it's an incredibly important idea, project um, in in psychology in general, in my work with, with depth psychology in particular, because it makes conscious or brings into awareness the fact that our normative descriptions of anything, yeah, the the mind or human nature in particular, the psyche, so to speak, carries the weight of history in those descriptions, and not just sort of the weight of history in the abstract, but the history of marginalization, the history of colonization, and so if you if you bring a decolonial eye to psychology and depth psychology you inevitably see a a hierarchical arrangement um in how different people groups are described and who's placed um sort of at the developmental pinnacle of 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 what we take as normative maturity, um, rationality. And so if we don't decolonize depth psychology, we simply perpetuate a, a racist, hierarchical, colonizing perspective with every student that comes through it. We, we essentially colonize their intellectual space with the same ideas that we're used to literally colonize others. And so um, to work on decolonization is essentially trying to unpack or at least make conscious those assumptions that are carried into the classroom that are being absorbed as if they are norms and reality itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, at the foundation of that is this view of consciousness as an evolutionary process. Right that at some point there was a less evolved consciousness, uh, which has been described by Jung um, as uh, participation mystique from right. Libby Brule, um, uh, the primitive, um, the, the lower level, um, yeah. abaissement niveau, like all these terms are pointing toward, toward levels. But, uh, you know, what I was thinking about was, you know, pondering like, does Jung actually value them uh, at a lower level? Or does he just recognize that uh, we all carry a kind of ancestral history with us? And, uh, you know, he, he saw that as levels. He even had that famous dream about the psyche as house. And he goes down in the basement, and there's like the bones of his indigenous ancestors or whatever, right? Um, but did he value the lower levels less it at times seems to like it's what we want to strive for is to not get caught in this um kind of undifferentiated consciousness of the primitive but we want to rise above that into differentiation and then we can you know yeah so yeah i i think it's both and this is where i think makes 
makes Jung difficult to categorize in, in very neat either or places because there is absolutely emphasis in his work on the detriment of losing rapport with with our ancestral primordial sort of depths which he either describes as primitive or ancestral or archaic using less or more baggage language around that but he does value that place at least as equal to consciousness if not more where the language gets problematic for for jung is that the relationship between those deeper strata of the psyche and consciousness he sees as uh, essentially assimilating though the deeper layers to consciousness and seeing the danger of consciousness being too captured by those deeper layers and so there is connotations that should consciousness should we lose ourselves to those deeper layers we're essentially regressing and that is sort of carries the connotation that though that's a less those depths are less rational less human more animalic all those kind of connotations which are um again carry this weight of language and history that that do devalue um indigenous ancestral ways of being as less developed than european consciousness i think for me this is rooted in this this idea that was prominent in Jung's day called recapitulation theory. And it was sort of a, became a standard way to articulate this evolution of consciousness that you're talking about, that every human being carries these layers with them. And the more, the closer you get to the child and the animal, the farther back in history you are seeing human levels of consciousness. And there was a really explicitly racist theory and was used to say, oh, well, where are where are the Asians on this map? Where are Africans? Where are and of course they were all lower on the developmental spectrum and therefore reflected earlier stages of consciousness. Right, like the the, chi the childlike savage. Correct. Yeah, and that idea was so taken for granted that and and adopted into depth psychology in particular that its filaments have have a lot of undoing. It's just such a for me a horrific assumption that is normative in depth psychological discourse that has to be rooted out at the core uprooted yeah i agree and um one of the few uh, prominent depth psychologists i think who addressed that in his own way was james hillman yeah i mean hillman was really good at doing the deconstruction of some of these these norms and um uh, 
assumptions that are just kind of unconsciously accepted as some kind of truth, either because they came from the mouth of Jung himself or, you know. Right. Uh, and so Hillman was really great at doing the deconstruction, but I don't know how close he ever got to the kind of the, the root system of, uh, you know, what we might call, like Martin Pertel has this term, the indigenous soul. Right. The idea that at the core of each of us is a, a soul that's deeply connected to the earth and to nature and to uh, ritual and things like that. Um, I don't know how close Hillman got to that. You know, he went as far as the Greeks, but uh, he was such a kind of mid-Atlantic fella. Yes. You know, I can't really see him going down to the Amazon and drinking some ayahuasca and going, oh, okay. Yeah. There's something. You know. <laughs> what well, do you think about him and his project? how it relates to decolonization. Yeah, well, I mean, I think sort of his polytheistic stance uh, inherently deconstructs sort of privileging a normative narrative about the psyche or human nature. And so, and doesn't hierarch create a hierarchy in the psyche itself between this place and that everything has to be equally tended as equally expressive of psychological life so that is a really powerful um lens that lends itself to indigenous ways of of thinking and experiencing i do think he particularly at the revisioning psychology lecture book phase he's still basically assuming European normativity with with Greek Roman myth as being sort of the given psychological mythical background of psychological life. What's really interesting uh, though is that at toward the end of his life um, and I just finished working on, working with a gentleman named Dick Russell on the official biographies of Hillman. Yeah, we, uh, I just had him on the podcast, right? Perfect. And so, yeah, you were uh, one of his copy editors, I think, yes. right? Or the, the copy editor. Yeah, right. for the last two volumes. So, but what what struck me about particularly the end of volume two and volume three is he started um, working with the men's movement, as it was called, which got into for some people, problematic territory of, of ritual and appropriation, but there were members of the men's movement that were genuine indigenous elders, and Hillman began to appreciate their work much more uh, thoroughly than tends to come through in his earlier work. And then by the, you know, maybe last decade of his life, he was making trips to Japan like yearly, if not more than yearly, and started appreciating uh, Shinto um, sensibilities. And and he gets to a place where I, I'd never really heard him talk positively about indigenous perspectives, but he gets to a place where he's doing a, a lecture on on beauty and ecology and he's framing it as this multiplicity interdependent recognition of the cosmos 
And he makes the shift to say, and this is what indigenous people have been saying. This this worldview I'm now articulating in Western terms, uh, I now realize <laughs> what is is what has been already articulated in indigenous communities. And you see this shift of, of e making that an equivalent of what used to be for him um a european uh privileged position he now sees it in relative terms in relationship to um indigenous ways of speaking and thinking about the cosmos and that for me was a very sort of affirmative moment um that comes out in the biographies of his recognition of of where he gets in a very developed european mythic perspective to say oh and this is i'm getting to a place where people have already been and i love i love that recognition in him yeah yeah it's almost like his whole uh project like against jungianism uh and against christianism monotheism he was doing his own project of decolonizing without consciously thinking Correct. i need to decolonize i mean he might have actually used some of that terminology at some point but and so he got to a point late in life where this whole other appreciation opened up to him like oh because like in his work he only goes so far south Correct. as the mediterranean you know yes. he keeps saying like we have to go south we've had too much northern thinking we got to go south but he stops at the mediterranean it's like get on a boat jim yes. there's more there's more <laughs> further south and they have yeah. a lot of interesting things to say about this polytheistic worldview and yes. you know <laughs> the animate world. <laughs> um, it's it's a kind of a shame that that he didn't have a chance to articulate that in depth in his work at the end of his life. You know, um, I agree. but yeah, you do hear hints of it in some of these lectures that you can dig out, and I'm sure Dick. Russell, because of his experience with Maladoma Somme yes. and going to Africa with his son, wanted to draw some of that out and, and get it down yes. on the record, right? Yeah, because that that relationship between Dick Russell, his son, and and Maladoma Somme doesn't happen without James Hillman. James Hillman is the one that says you got you need to go meet with Somme. And yeah, it's like the one African shaman that Hillman knew. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, but it's as I, I think uh Maladoma opened up Hillman in ways that Hillman didn't didn't realize he could be opened up. I think that relationship changed Hillman in ways that didn't ever fully make it into his work which is which is dis disappointing and sad because i think that the threads are starting to show up later in his work and it just doesn't come come as explicitly out as i think it could have mm -hmm. yeah you know i think maladoma could speak his language because he did have the western education before his his own kind of uh indigenous initiation you know back into his uh his mother tribe um and I think uh, Hillman needed that, right? Yes. He needed that to, to respect the person on the intellectual level. Right. And that that's where that's why Vine Deloria for me is such a 
valuable scholar because you can't read his work and say and think anything other than this guy's absolutely brilliant and so when i have students read him like just the process of reading him to me challenges oh i'm i'm reading a native american author whatever that might mean he he is so <laughs> supremely brilliant that you have to you just have to reposition your intellectual stance to to engage with them and i think just that experience itself is valuable to to find someone that is not just capable of reading jung but capable of critiquing jung in jung's own language and it's just it's just an incredible embodiment of of his capacity to engage in conversation to affirm and also critique and all in the space of of being an indigenous author who is second to none intellectually to anyone else we're reading mm -hmm. so yeah and, and a very polemic author and activist yes um, he wasn't some uh soft shoe no uh, intellectual scholar i mean he was boots on the ground activist yes. Uh, with this uh, really deep scholarly background and religious background too yes. in both the, the Christian church and his own native traditions. Yeah. Like he's like the perfect guy to come up against young. Yes. Like maybe the only guy who could do it from that side of things, like from the I, indigenous perspective, right? Correct. Cause he's not, he's going to affirm the value of, the numinous religious spiritual background to life just as much as he's going to be able to critique really sort of detailed points of philosophy or whatever the case may be so it's it's impossible to to dis for me it's impossible to dismiss deloria and so you just you you find yourself entering intellectual do, uh, domains and concepts because you just at least have to appreciate the the sophistication the warmth the holisticness of his of his perspective it's mm -hmm. yeah has, it's so true like you have to you can't dismiss him yeah uh, like Hillman, you know, people dismiss him quite a bit, you know, if they don't like what he says or how he challenges uh, these kind of sacred right. concepts, uh, you know, they'll say, well, he uh, he quit being a clinician really early on. Right. He had kind of father issues with Jung. He was uh, anti-establishment. You know, he had these kind of this chip on his shoulder. Uh, he himself, you know, whatever. Yeah. on and on and on right and so they can dismiss him and uh also like the kind of um his his language can be quite difficult to get into yeah. whereas deloria is uh is more kind of um straight and clear and yeah. easy to understand so the ideas are more um apparent yes when you read him because i do i think in some cases hillman isn't really concerned with 
the person on the street, so to speak, of like needing to to bridge what he's talking about to the everyday. I think Deloria is sort of inherently relational in his articulation of everything that he's not leaving anyone out of the conversation, both sort of the community member that's sort of on the reservation or or elsewhere in the world and the intellectual that's sitting in a uh, academic department. He just, to me, has a sensibility for bridging that Hillman sometimes can be lacking. Yeah. Well, right there is how the indigenous perspective is uh, expressed in relationship, in communication style versus Hillman you know, as much as he railed against the North, it's a kind of a very Northern kind of yes. attitude uh, of the intellectual to um, meet, not, um, meet me up here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have he's the Hill man. You got to go yes. meet him up there, even though he hated hills. But uh, yes. you know, he was more into valleys. Yeah, uh, but it didn't show. I mean, he tried in Soul's Code. I think he was really yes. pressed to do something that was more accessible. And I think it's a great book, but I'm sure the editor did a lot of heavy lifting on that book. Yes, and I, I, and that that book also comes out of that turn in his life where he's participating in the men's movement. So it right. it even reflects a, a bit of a, oh, I'm I'm having conversations with people that I'm not normally having conversations with, and I think that 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 grew out of that. But I I agree. I think it's a. I think it was probably an effort for <laughs> an effort of doing something that that wasn't normal for him. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know how Vine Deloria got introduced to to Jung? Was it just because he was so widely read, or was there something in particular that grabbed him? I don't know. That's a great question. I think it. I think it's probably because he just. Uh, one of i think his larger projects in his work is to find resonant voices that are sort of that carry marginalized unaddressed things that modernity had left out uh he has i'm gonna miss the title uh, i think it's called the metaphysics of modernity or something like that where He's, he talks about Jung and he talks about several sort of scientists or or different philosophers who are carrying voices in the West that Western scientism doesn't make room for. And so I think he, he just has a, a project where he's not just so-called championing indigenous purity or something like that where he's like i have i have the value of this tradition and i want to find contact points in western culture that can provide narrative threads to counter the the dominant narratives happening and i think jung was one of those people that he found some level of contact or continuity between himself and indigenous perspective enough to have a conversation with 
Um, and so I, I think some of that contact came out of that larger intellectual relational project that that carries through his work. Right. Yeah. Kind of recognizing in Jung uh, a potential ally yes. for Deloria's larger project of, I would say, decolonizing the the anima mundi or the the global psyche in Correct. a way. Because, yeah, I mean, he there. The thing about when we talk about decolonization, that it's always a sticking point for me that I don't hear addressed enough, is I can't separate colonization from Christianity. No, they're inseparable. Yeah. yeah, colonization doesn't happen without Christianity. Yeah, yeah at least to the degree that it's happened. Correct. Not like when we're talking about what actually happened. You can't. You cannot separate it from from Christianity, and and not what I have a problem with as it is the idea that it maybe expresses a a side of Christianity gone awry. I don't think that's true. I think it expresses something inherent to to. To Christianity, the idea that here's a particular figure that holds the truth, all other ways of knowing become irrelevant, and therefore go make every other assimilate to this. And I don't, to me, that's inherent to a Christian worldview. You can't take the two apart. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I completely agree with you on that. Well, and that's the core belief that um, that fuels colonization. Yes, like you really have to believe that you're on uh, God's mission. Yes, in order to do what people have done, and to I mean to to travel the great distances and take the risks in the, you know <laughs> it, it's yeah. incredible what it's done, and you know I find myself sometimes caught up in this uh, fantasy of like what would happen if. Um, Paul of Tarsus like broke his leg on, on right. you know, before he could get out and kind of start right. missionizing. Like, how the world could have been so different. I mean, everything we know of the past two thousand years would be radically different. It's had that kind of universal effect on on most of the globe. Yes, I I agree. I I think there's a part of me that that feels like. If if you want to take it back another layer, that Christianity itself expresses a possibility of the human psyche that that would find some expression in some ideology, but the way it happened in Christianity became a vehicle for a global normative divine revelation that gives me permission to take from you and and dismiss any truth value or counterposition because you simply don't have the god's eye view that i do like that is so toxic and inherent to to christianity i i do think that there's 
that decolonization has to come up against that or it's it's sort of bucking the task if if they want if if you try to decolonize without facing christianity mm -hmm. yeah you know, i've thought about this because when i talk to some people um you know people of european descent or people who live in europe still i don't think they understand why i'm so sensitive to uh issues around colonization um, but it has to do with the place where I live. Uh, it's not very common, I think, in North America to live right down the road from a reservation in one direction right. and having another one down the other direction. Like It wasn't until I moved to this island that has a really high native population uh, you know, on a small landmass where I was really confronted with the effects of colonization. Right. And so um, I just, you know... I, I started uh, you know, letting people know that, yes, I may be a little more sensitive to it, but here's why. And yeah. so even if you don't think it's important, um, I think it is because I see the real effects every day. Uh, so I just want to make that um, clear to people, you know, why it's important to me as a, as a settler, as a non-Indigenous person, why it's important. It's because it's a compassion for humanity. Right. Yeah, and uh, for me, like the only possibility for colonialism to actually sort of be stemmed and decolonial efforts can only progress to the extent that those who would typically be colonizers begin decolonizing themselves and their own perspectives otherwise it's just a fragment of humanity doing the work and it's like no we have to address the 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 colonizer in everyone or like this is this is just a side project it's just a it's just a, a fetish it's like the the people it can't just be an indigenous person work it, it can't be or it'll it'll stop at that line um but i <laughs> i'm glad you you bring that up because i i live in an area of colorado where it's this i'm in the same experience i have uh navajo and ute reservations close by and to sort of give context to my own sensitivity to it, I am half Mexican. Um, uh, my mom's Mexican. And part of my history in Colorado is that my family comes from an area that's about an hour from here called the San Luis Valley, where uh, Mexican uh pueblo ute i believe tribes um sort of interacted intersected when the area was not the united states and so my family is indigenous to that area of colorado uh, southern colorado northern new mexico that um for my family were were living in mexican territory when that then became the United States at a certain point. Um, 
I remember having conversations with my grandmother about migration stories, like when did we come from Mexico? And there was absolute <laughs> silence. It's like, no, they just moved the line. <laughs> yes. Eventually, like through the help of We never of my left wife, Mexico. It was like, oh no, the what used to be just sort of land that we lived on, our our space, our our domain became the United States. All of a sudden we belonged to someone else or something else, and our land was then available to other people to do with what they wish so that's my own sort of background in relationship to this conversation yeah um but growing up in um anglo north america uh you were subjected to a lot of the conditioning that all of us were even people who you know i'm a full-blood 100 european mutt you know, right. there's there's a lot mixed in there, but yeah, all my people are from Europe. Um, but yeah, we're still it's still how our minds were shaped from yes. the get go. Um, now, oh god, this is such a I think an important topic, um, particularly not separating Christianity and colonization. Yeah, I mean that's a big one. Uh, because Jung himself was the kind of, he he wrestled and struggled a lot yeah. with uh, Christianity, and um, he never became kind of an anti-Christian or a post-Christian. I think in his lifetime, I don't think he ever really let go of it. I there there's places there's places in his his work where he's I don't know if he stays there, but he at least sort of goes over the line to say I'm. I'm not a Christian. And then they'll come back and say, basically, culturally, I'm a I'm a Protestant Christian. That's sort of the space I occupy. But I don't, I don't, from my reading of him, don't think he felt at home in Christianity at uh at least as sort of like a permanent place where he felt described his perspective on things i think he i think he goes back and forth over that line there's a lot of deconstruction of christianity but there's also a lot just left in place um and so i think that's also part of the decolonizing of depth psychology is often how christian depth psychology still is um in, yeah. in some ways so well even hillman admitted that you know got yeah. a jewish background he said look this is basically a, a, a christian um reform or yeah. practice uh yeah okay so that's really interesting about Jung. like i wonder if something like that attracted vine to his work was he saw Jung trying to deconstruct the the kind of um, Christian conditioning and, right. and true, like honestly and sincerely wrestling with it and like wrestling with it in public. Yeah. I mean, some of the way that Jung wrestles with Christianity is so kind of personal that it's like it, it, it borders on unprofessional. Right. And this yeah, isn't and in his memoir, even it's like in his yes. works. Yes. Yeah. No, I mean, in his, uh, uh, book uh ion he like he's really transgressing his cultural norms he starts he's like 
he starts talking about wholeness and he goes, what I'm talking about is can be symbolized by Christ, but Christ fails to live up to, to what I'm trying to describe as psychological wholeness, which entails sort of the full spectrum of psychological life, not just goodness, light, um, spirit. And so he has places where he's explicitly um, challenging those norms in ways that I think the general reader in his time would have found very uncomfortable to read. Um, and he, But I think he felt sort of compelled to go into those areas because I do think he felt that it was destructive to not start pulling some things apart mm -hmm. psychologically. Yeah. Well, especially how he saw, like, well, there's this thing because he is, uh, he's critical of um, the Protestant Reformation because it removed a lot of the kind of symbolic containers that uh, held all of these archetypal forces right. and, and kept them at bay, called it like kind of defense against the, right. the power of these forces. And we don't want to unleash them. When we do, when we take those away, uh, we get World War One and World War right. Two. Like, uh, so at the same time, he's almost like asking us to return to a, a cath more a Catholic approach to Christianity with all of the icons and symbols and rituals and everything right. and the mass in Latin. And, and I think a lot of Jungians, when they are Christians, that's what they kind of go to because yeah. it looks like, okay, Jung's saying if we are going to be a Christian, it, we better be Catholic. Like, right. And even like kind of... Eastern Orthodox is even better because right. there's more symbols and icons. Right. And I'm like, no, no, you guys don't get it. I mean, no. the whole project from the get-go is a failure and it's done nothing for the planet. Yeah, no, I and I I I sort of cringe at when I see people making that reading of what he's saying because he has another essay called uh, the symbolic life where he's he says what I'm really trying to talk about, is, and he uses the term primitive, but a symbolic way of engaging with life as a whole, not, and he's talking to a group of priests, I think, and explicitly contrasting what he's doing with simply a return to Christianity of any form, that that the positioning of, of value between Protestant and Catholic isn't sort of an endpoint, but a way to say humans have always needed ritual, symbolic ways of mediating, experiencing, participating in the world. And if you're going to pick between Protestant and Catholic, Catholic still has some of this, but it's not like it's the epitome of the symbolic life. It's just better in relative terms than zero symbols <laughs> or zero rituals that have been stripped by Protestantism. So, yeah, it's it. I think for people to read Jung as like he's telling us to go back to the Catholic Church, I think misses the point entirely. Yeah, I think Jordan Peterson went down that road to yes. a certain degree. He's been kind of getting more catholic as the years go on and he hasn't Correct. stopped talking about young and i'm like dude <laughs> yeah i don't think you're fully getting the message here 
Correct. But he, he's on his own mission. Yes. Yeah. Um, does he come up in your courses? Do people bring him up as an example of how to uh, read religion uh, symbolically and not literally, and then how it can work for us if, if we just kind of keep that uh, intellectual distance from it? Not often. Not as often I, as I would have thought he would enter conversations. Uh, I've I've probably had Peterson brought up a couple of times in the last, you know, in the entire time I've been teaching, which started in 2017. So he doesn't, he's not prominent. And, and I don't, I'm, I'm glad on the one hand, uh, but on the other hand, I, there, he's so, has such a, a place with certain populations in America and, and elsewhere that I, I'm surprised by how little uh, he's come up as how to do things or his attitude towards certain things. Well, in, in certain kind of uh, liberal circles, I think he's like a persona non grata. Like we don't yeah. even, we don't even mention his name around here, yeah. but I think like he's one of those people got to reckon to because he's out there and he's talking about young, he's talking yeah. about religion. Um, and like, for me, it's like, he's almost there. He's almost there. Yes. I, I read him and I have that same, of, I'm like, I, like you're saying the things, but there's something, <laughs> there's, there's some also fundamental missing it at the same time and it's a weird it's a weird he occupies a weird psychological space that i that i understand his appeal for for certain groups but when he when it comes to young i'm just like i don't know where you're i don't know where you ended up going i don't there's some divergence that just it's it's almost like a visceral feeling of like something's something's off yeah. yeah hard to articulate right but here's something i think is telling um i remember uh during a q a after one of his lectures that i saw online um somebody was asking him like where to begin with jung i think and uh so they brought up ion he said Oh no, man! Ion's dangerous. Be careful with that book, right? And yeah. Thought, Why does he think it's so dangerous? Well, because like you're talking about, Jung is deconstructing uh, the kind of supremacy of, the, yes. of Christianity as the pinnacle religion, as the yes. kind of, you know, and like he does fall into that sometimes, like talking about Christianity as this like pinnacle of uh, yes. of not only evolution of consciousness, but evolution of like religious expression. Correct. And a lot of people see it that way. Like a Jonathan Pajo, I hear him talk about that. It's like, it's like we came, we refined everything until we got to this, like yeah. the, the most amazing, the perfect story to help us yes. with our lives. Right. And I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I think like something that like Peterson's not able to fully let go of it because he's afraid of what would happen in him. Yeah, if he were like, he's not willing to go there. It's like he'll talk about the power of psychedelics to change people's minds, but he's not going to do them. Correct. No, I. It's a control I, thing, right? Absolutely. I I think that is sort of the 
thing that makes him for me non-depth psychological is because he's wanting to sort of close off the mysteries with some like here's here's some like clear answers to things rather than deconstructing our answers uh, there's something about him that appeals to the need for mm-hmm. some certainties rather than loosening our grip on those things and i think maybe that's where i feel this cross purposes of his work and depth psychology in general is like with my students i'm trying to unravel those certainties to have them fall into other ways of being and experiencing life that doesn't require the scriptures to provide the answers like and and i think that's where he's he goes in the other way of life's very chaotic here's it's literally the antidote to chaos. I mean, that's yes. the subtitle yes. of his book, The right. Antidote to Chaos. I mean, that tells you everything you need to know. If you, if you kind of look at him from an archetypal perspective yes. about the nature of his relationship to the the quote-unquote feminine or, right. or chaos, it's like, do we need an antidote to chaos, Right, it's Dr. Peterson? Is it chaos? Who asked for it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, the way he characterizes the the other like chaos like a dangerous zone like all of that it's like well you're you're revealing more than you're <laughs> intending yeah say. you're showing your your limits of experience yeah. and capacities there yeah well and the key thing is he's not a depth psychologist no uh he's like basically a neuro neuroscience uh cognitive behavioral type yes. psychologist who relies on statistics a lot, yes. uh, but he, he kind of appropriates Jung to, I think, support his uh, religious mission. Correct. There's something, yeah. Like there is an appropriation of Jung there, I think. There is, which I think- He's not, uh, he's not willing to go to the depths that Jung went to, which was no. like mad, kind of a madness. Yeah, no, and I I think maybe that's why what bothers me is I feel like there's there is an, a misuse and an exploitation that of of Jung and depth psychology to normalize things that are trying to be denormalized by by depth psychology and Jung, and that bothers me. Yeah. Mm. Oh, it feels good to have this conversation. I mean, I, I can't have this conversation with many people. I don't think. <laughs> so I'm glad it came up. I feel like I've had some therapy. Yes, same. <laughs> this was an excerpt of a longer conversation if you'd like to listen to the full episode and support the podcast consider becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness thanks